Hello and welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. On today's episode, we have a former teacher turned entrepreneur, Julian Hamm. What this guy doesn't know about electricity isn't worth knowing. You may have heard of his work, you may have enjoyed his training and his excellent animations, all found at electricityexplained.com. In this episode, we find out all about Julian's career journey, his passion for physics, and his mission to explain the ideas students find particularly challenging in the most elegant way possible. This episode is very current and could make a potential difference to your teaching life. So don't resist any further. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Julian Ham's View from the Lab. Hi, Julian, and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Andy, thank you so much for having me. Great to see you. Not a problem. Now, let us get started with a bit of a uh, bit of history. I'd like to go back and talk to my guests about their their scientific. Uh, uh, how can we put it, uh, beginning of their journeys, really. Um, in terms of academic background, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess it's going to be something physics-y, but what did you, what area of science did you kind of study uh, back in the day when you were at university? Yeah, that's a good call. So it was physics-y, but not physics. So, <laughs> so I, I read aeronautics and imperial. Wow. Okay, that sounds very technical. It does sound very technical. More technical than what I was prepared to cope with anyway. <laughs> okay. So it was, a it was a challenging course. I imagine though engineering has got a lot of mathematics in it. Um, uh, when I was at college, they remember the big, thick textbooks they used to have with first year mathematics. Um, was it kind of, was the, was the dream back in the day to kind of design aeroplanes or, or that kind of thing or space shuttles? What, or was it just a kind of um, uh, a choice you thought, oh, well, that sounds interesting? Yes, it was a sort of unfocused, oh, that sounds quite interesting, I should go at that, uh, have a go at that. Um, and it's definitely not because it was alphabetically first in the prospectus. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, um, it was, I guess, you know, um, did you get any opportunity in at, at that time to have any industry experience? It was very much, or was it very much kind of university focused at the time you were at, in that course? Yeah, it was lots of incredibly difficult maths. In fact, I don't really, I don't really, I don't think we saw like an aeroplane or an engine or anything like that. And one of my one of my friends and I still joke that we we don't really understand how wings work. Okay, well, so it's uh, it was it was a it was a, it was a well spent three three to five years. Uh, it was it was no it was it was it was brilliant. Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah. It was interesting as well. So you had to say it sounds like engineering, um, and actually in the UK, I kind of noticed that a lot of engineers and mathematicians. As you did, I think you went into finance first after university. Was that is that the case? Um, that seems to be quite common. I went into consultancy first of all. I used to work for what's now Accenture and um, what was at the time Anderson Consulting. But again, that was a sort of you know that that was not based on any understanding really of what the job role was. But it was a big company that was recruiting and paid moderately well, and lots of my friends were doing it. So I ended up doing that. Okay. Um, and was uh, incredibly mediocre at it, <laughs> at, at best, I would have said. So, and what was um, what kind of problems were you solving? Uh, can you remember what kind of jobs they gave you to start off with uh, in your first role kind of roles? So, so it's, I mean, it's so at the time it was when big computer systems were being put in everywhere. So the government was putting in lots of big computer systems. Finance companies were putting in lots of big computer systems. And we were basically a, uh, a big shop full of moderately clever, moderately or hardworking young people who they could uh, train to 
produce these big computer systems for big organizations. So it wasn't, you know, it was kind of sold as management consultancy, but it's not really McKinsey, you know, it's not Bain or BCG or something like that. But it was, you know, it was good. It was a good professional organization. They were very, very good at the time. So uh, yeah, you know, again, it was, it was, it was a really important part of my life. And I'm still great friends with several people who were there. I'm still there. And you, you kind of always did that for a little bit, from my understanding, speaking to you off the podcast, is that you, you were there, but you weren't there for a significant amount of time, you'd say, looking back. Um, what was it that kind of made you think, well, actually, well, I've, I've, I've made this decision, this decision um, it's not particularly for me. Um, and then you kind of thought perhaps about teaching. What made you kind of think, kind of go in a different direction at that time? Was it something that you just didn't, you felt like the, the, the corporate life was too dull or too mediocre? What was the, what was the thought process before thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to try something else now? Um, I mean, when I'd always been interested in teaching, I, I'd always been interested in teaching. And when I was at Imperial, we I did volunteering at Holland Park School, uh, which was kind of around the corner, which was one of the most progressive schools in the country okay. and was completely different from anything that I'd encountered before. But I really enjoyed doing that. Um, and so for me, it it was something that was always in the background and wasn't something that I thought, oh, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll, I'll go into teaching. It was something that I, you know, I'm passionate about and committed to. And I, I know what I'm rubbish at. I'm rubbish at lots and lots of things, but I'm moderately okay at teaching. <laughs> and you talked about that school, so Holland Park. So you talked about it being progressive. Um, at that time, what did that look like? What was progressive in terms of maybe in comparison, perhaps maybe it was at your, your school um, life and how did they, how did you feel that they did things differently there? I mean, when I was at school, I was at a um, minor independent school in the Isle of Man, um, and that was pretty traditional. Uh, you know, you, you all went to <laughs> you went to a lesson, and then there was a teacher at the front, and then they taught you stuff. Whereas at Holland Park at the time, it was, there were a load of kids doing different things all at the same time, with the teacher running around <laughs> trying to sort of solve problems. It didn't strike me as being an incredibly effective way to do things, because it wasn't like... Uh, it, it didn't seem to me at the time that there was huge amounts of learning going on, but it was, I mean, I, I'm interested in learning and understanding things. And so I try not to be judgmental about these things. And generally people do things for a good reason. And it's worthwhile spending some time trying to understand why things are organized the way they are. But it was certainly different. Different to your own experience. And then you, you went on to uh, do, do an education course and um, you started teaching in an independent school in in London wasn't it so based in London I think it still I suspect it still exists yeah yeah West London, Hampton School in West London yeah yeah and how did you find that school was it kind of quite similar in terms of, you talked about I guess the old phrase is chalk and talk so, so the school you went to was of a particular style I guess and I guess Things hadn't changed that much. Was 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 your was that school also kind of of a similar model in terms of the way they um, educated their students? Yeah, I think I I think so. Yes, definitely. It was um, the school I went to. It was much closer to Hampton than Hampton was to Holland Park. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, and so how long were you there? So teaching physics, um, roughly. Um, I think eight years in total. Okay, so quite a decent chunk of time, and you must have learned a lot during the, during the, those years. And um, I kind of often ask people who come to the podcast what they uh, what were they because I think probably I mean, it may not be true for you that you often remember some big mistakes you made in maybe the first two or three years uh, <laughs> where things didn't quite go to plan. Um, is there anything you kind of that kind of 
lodges in your memory about those kind of early teaching years in terms of um, things that you thought, oh, why did I do that? Or why, did, why did I make that decision? Is there anything that kind of uh, you remember from those, those, those years um, when you were teaching in that school? I mean, I, I, I remember particularly when I was doing my PGCE and what I really discovered from doing my PGCE, I, I did at the Institute of Education in London, um, was that even though I could answer physics questions and pass exams, I didn't understand it at all. It was a complete mystery to me. And you could have asked me a load of very, very simple qualitative questions and I would have got them all wrong. In fact, did get them all wrong. Um, and that was a real eye-opener for me. And that led to an interest in general as to how you know, clever, educated people can uh, misunderstand basic science in predictable ways. Yes, and, and did that kind of, I think obviously teaching does tend to expose that to yourself in a sense that things that you, as you said, sometimes we can learn things and answer questions, but with not having a deeper understanding if someone questioned what, why did you do that or what are your assumptions there? Um, I mean, what's your, th- what's your thought about um, exams actually? Obviously exams have been around for, for many, many years and there's different ways you can, you can, you can assess people. Um, how easy do you think is he in terms of if you if you put like a physics exam and maybe you had like a like a viva you have maybe at university but you had it for like younger pupils how do you think that would work would that be quite a hard thing it might be logistically hard to kind of um do but do you think it would be a, a, a another way in which you could assess students you think in terms of their, their understanding and explaining things in a in an oral capacity so that so that is that's a good question, Andy, and I don't know the answer to it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I suspect, I suspect these things tend to sort of collapse to a sort of energy minimum as far as administration is concerned. So, you, so like you have to choose something, and so in general, you are not going to choose the most administratively complicated thing to do. And I suspect exams are the least administratively complicated. And in addition, you can you need to be able to do things like you, you need to be able to measure performance um, a, a, across cohorts and across years and stuff like that. And I suspect exams happen to be easy to, to do that. I, I think the 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 real I mean, just from having teenagers of my own, um, is that it is frustrating that you can't show what you know sometimes in an exam paper it's like well I knew all those things I just didn't get the answer right and you didn't give me the opportunity to show that thing that I knew and, and I think particularly for um, you know for electricity one of the problems is that um, the stuff that you need to know to understand electricity is almost never tested for in exams I think it's if you look at the IOP's work on the rope loop and stuff like that mm. um, it does all these brilliant things like um, saying, well, the, the charges are already there and they all start moving everywhere at the same time. But that is an incredibly important conceptual thing to understand about electric circuits. But there is never any question in an exam that tests that basic piece of understanding. And that's kind of frustrating because no, with few exceptions, no child is going to need to use the Ohm's law, inverted commas, equation in later life, but it is useful studying science to have some idea of um, what's going on in the world around you. Building a picture, you think, because I mean, I think that, um, so in this this time, so you're, one of your first project was furry, furry Elephant, is that correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, was that something you were developing 
um, during your teaching time? Because I know you had a break from teaching um, after those eight years. So did you kind of start it in your teaching uh, as part of a project, I suppose, for your own pupils, maybe start off? How did that, that, that come about? Or did you kind of decide, oh, I've done a bit of teaching, then I'm going to have a look at this project? Because you'd seen these problems of, of being able to explain, specific, you know, electricity is one of your big passions. Um, so how does, how does that fit into your kind of uh, that, that area, that time of your life? So I created the very first um, electric circuit animation, which we can talk okay. about in a bit, when I was still at school, because when I was still teaching at Hampton, because I wanted, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be brilliant if there was an animation of this thing that I have in my head? Yeah. And so I taught myself an animation tool called Flash, and I built the animation just for my own teaching. And so I never intended really for anybody else to use it at all. And then I kind of gradually built it out and it sort of expanded organically. So there was ne- there was never intention, oh, I'm gonna go up, I'm gonna give up teaching and and write physics teaching software instead. I didn't that that was never my intention to do that. But that but then we uh, my wife and I decided to take some time out and go traveling around the world. So I left I left teaching and we went traveling. Right. Okay, I see. And so that was kind of an actual break break for you and uh, I guess time to think about what was next after you'd had that. that yeah. Um, but you didn't. So is it correct? So you didn't go straight. You didn't go back to education after you'd had that kind of career break. I guess did you? You went on to. You transitioned um, to. Is it, was it? Was it this time you looked and moved towards the radioactivity sector? Is that correct? Or was that? Oh, so, no, so, that so that was a long time afterwards. So so um, so we went travelling for a year. That was fantastic. we sold our very small flat in London. Went travelling for a year. Came back. We um, helped a friend of a friend renovate their house in France for money. That's how we survived <laughs> living in the building site. <laughs> well, my wife worked very hard, and I tapped away on my computer keyboard for you know long hours of the day. And um, so I built out electricity explained, and I built out then radioactivity explained because that was the that was the next thing to do, and that was all underneath the the furry elephant uh, furry elephant banner. Did I tell you the furry elephant story? I thought it was. It? No, we're coming. Let's go back. Let's let's, let's hear it. So, what is it? <laughs> the fact that it was called furry elephant. Um, <laughs> sometimes these things have a story. Sometimes they don't. But so, uh, it sounds like the furry elephant does have some kind of. Yeah, it, it wasn't just a sort of stupid name. Um, so, when I was a student, I was listening to um, Radio Four, and there used to be a program called In Touch. Uh, which for, was for blind and visually impaired people. Okay. And they and they had an article um, about or feature about taking a, a group of blind at birth adults to London Zoo hmm. to use their sense of touch to find out about the animals. Okay. And um, and they interviewed them afterwards, and they interviewed uh, um, one of the one of the folks afterwards, and he said um, he said the elephant was brilliant. He said it was exactly as I thought it was going to be, but I always thought they were covered in fur. And that, for me, was exactly how people misunderstand science, is they have all of these gaps that they don't know they have, and they fill in the gaps subconsciously, and then they can't tell which of the things they've been taught and which of the things they kind of worked out for themselves. And so if you don't tell somebody that um, the charges in a circuit are already there, and move all at the same time, and move, in fact, very slowly, like a very slowly rotating wheel, then they will naturally fill in the gap with, well, they probably move very quickly because light bulbs come on straight away as soon as I flick the switch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, seems, it seems like um, 
Yeah, I mean that that that's one of the one of the difficulty thing difficult things of having also been next teacher about teaching or any science, but anything that is hugely out of our, our perceptions of scale, whether it be the very large or the or the very small, is often what we're talking about in in science sometimes. Um, I mean, when you talk about electrons, and and I don't know if there's an answer to this, but I think I spoke to you off the podcast about this about electrons, and um, do they have or can you say they've got a speed, if you like, as in when you switch a circuit on, when you just put a when you put a battery in a you know those the kind of things you get in a school science kit, and you switch it on, um, can you even say is it the right concept to say that electrons have speed when you switch them on because my model of it, which may be wrong, is obviously they're moving through the circuits. They get, um, so is there, an, is there a simple answer to that? It may not be a simple answer to that. Do they have a speed? So that, so that is a really good question. And again, this is an example of a question that is never asked in an exam, but would be a good question. <laughs> you know, a good question. So my way of thinking about it is um, I think about a big train stationary in a platform. Okay with empty carriages, but the empty carriages are all full of flies. And those flies represent electrons. And those flies are buzzing around randomly, really, really quickly. But because the train itself is stationary, the flies aren't going anywhere. So there's no current, right? Okay. Now that is called the thermal speed of the electrons. And that is of the order of about 0.3% of the speed of light. So it's a million meters per second, a thousand kilometers per second. It's very, very fast. And it's there all the time. Um, when you close the circuit it's like the train very slowly starting to move out of the station mm. and you can imagine that the rear carriage starts moving at almost exactly the same time as the engine because the tension is taken up in the couplings very very quickly between the carriages mm. and that's called the signal speed and that's the speed at which the circuit finds out about changes for example switching on, switching off, changing the voltage of the power supply, changing the resistance to the variable resistor. The whole circuit finds out about these changes very, very, very quickly at, at the signal speed. And then the final speed is the speed of the actual carriages as they move very, 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 very slowly along the, along the railway track. Um, and the flies are still buzzing around inside, but now they have superimposed on this buzzing, this very, very, very slow motion along the railway track. And that's called the drift speed. And the drift speed for a simple circuit at school is of the order of a fraction of a millimetre per second. It's much slower than a snail. It's very, very slow. Um, but as I say, because they're already there everywhere in the circuit, that's why the light bulb still comes on straight away. I see. So it's more of a kind of, a, and I guess you could argue, I've got my physics, this is testing my physics knowledge, that the flies that are moving, I guess you could say that they, they've got, would you say they've got vector quality or vector qualities or not, as in, because they're moving in random directions, I guess they've got a, obviously they have a certain amount of kinetic energy associated with them. Would that be right to say or not? Um, or can you not say in that way? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that is a good call. Is um, they do they have about a fortieth of an electron volt? If you're familiar with that, okay, unit of just thermal energy, just generally, yeah, they do. So, um, we talked about again. I talked a few weeks about about you know the pro problems and beauty of models as well, um, in terms of explaining things in in you know physics, physics, chemistry, and biology. But can you, so you've given me a new model today, the, the train, I'm going to call it the train model, okay? 
can you use that model to then build on all the other ideas of the, well, the three classics, I suppose, which to me are current voltage and resist and resistance. So the kind of the ideas that you tend to talk about in school science between, well, seven years, seven to 11, I guess, um, and beyond that. But is that model good enough to talk about things like current and, and uh, potential difference? Or, or does it break down? Uh, do those carriages <laughs> split up? I don't know. As in, can, can, is the way of doing that with, with the model you've, you've, you've uh, described so far? Yeah, that's, that's a good call. So I would only use that model. Um, to describe the three different speeds. And many teachers would avoid speeds altogether. But if you don't say something about speed, kids will definitely think it moves quickly. <laughs> so it's a very elephant bit. You can't leave the gap. And so if you, um, you know, the simplest thing to say is they move very slowly, like a very slowly moving wheel. And you ignore the flies and you ignore the signal speed and all that sort of stuff. But when, but when you might say, oh, well, when you make this change in the circuit, how does the circuit know that this change has happened? Well, the answer is, is because the signal speed is very high. Like the train carriages know very, very quickly whether the speed of the engine has changed or not. So I, I, would, I only use that analogy to talk about speed of stuff. And I don't use it to talk about um, voltage, current and power. I mean, the, so what, what Electricity Explained has, which I think makes it unique, is it has a... Um, a model of a simple electric circuit with a visual output. And it's not an analogy. Often what we use in physics is we use analogies. We say some physical system, like a rope loop or a wheel or something like that, mm. is similar in some ways to some other physical system, like an electric circuit. Um, or we might use um, something what's what, which is called a donation model, which is something like, oh, an electric circuit, it's a bit like a road full of bread vans and the bread vans pick up the bread at the bakery and they drop off the bread at the shop and this shows energy being shifted around the circuit, okay. Hmm. What the electricity explained simulation does is it uses maths and physics to get the answers right and then outputs it visually. And what that looks like is, it, you can imagine a very simple circuit with a battery and a, and a filament bulb, and that is full of little black dots. And each black dot represents one coulomb of charge. And so the idea of current is, well, roughly speaking, is how fast those black dots move around the circuit, all at the same time, like a wheel. And they move very, very slowly. <coughs> the... Um, the electricity explained simulation is mathematically consistent. So because each black dot represents one coulomb of charge, you can actually use a little stopwatch and time them. And if there are two charges passing a point per second, then that's two amperes. And if there are four coulombs of charge passing a point per second, that's four amperes. And so it, it's, it's mathematically self-consistent. The way I visualize voltage is by kind of a red transparent circle around the black dots. And the, that kind of represents energy. It, it strictly, it represents electrical potential energy. And I can say a little bit about that, but it's, that's about 80% right. It's not quite right. It's about 80% right. Um, and so you can, it helps you visualize how energy gets shifted around a circuit. There are some physicists who massively object to that model. <laughs> that's fine. We can talk about that <laughs> in a bit, maybe. Um, 
And then finally, there's the, well, how quickly does energy get shifted in the bulb? And that depends on how quickly the black dots are moving. That's the current. And it depends on how much red stuff each black dot loses in the bulb. And that's, how, how, that's the energy that it carries. Again, that's voltage. That's kind of what voltage is, roughly speaking. And so power, brightness of the bulb, depends on how quickly charges arrive, the current, and how much energy per charge is dumped, essentially, mm. in the bulb. I don't know if that, does that make sense? Does that remind no, you? I was just thinking about it. It, it kind of does, uh, does, in a sense, I was thinking about one of the hardest things to talk about is that energy transfer, linking it to potential, uh, potential difference. As those, you know, black dots go round, I assume the, obviously the reds, the red, uh, um, let's call it, should we call it energy or potential difference dissipates towards a component or moves through it through a component. Um, but then I guess the black dot carries on at the same speed as it, as it goes through. Yeah. Yes, it's going carrying on at the same speed. Okay. Um, and at some point, how does that, um, does it also help explain to kids uh, what, happens when a battery runs out or is that too is that, is that going too deep into kind of the the, the, the um going kind of in a sense going into electrochemistry of a battery and, and that makes it a bit too messy then if you sort of mean um how do you kind of explain batteries running out basically where does that you know energy go or is it the, or is the battery got a certain amount of redness if you like that's going to give to the black dots and then it's at some point that that is going to be you know not used but transferred to a component or lost by a uh, resistance, I guess, um, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yes, yeah, so I mean, what I haven't done because it's irritating to code. Um, but what might be sensible is to show um, a store of red stuff energy okay. from the battery, yeah. which runs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very interesting because the idea of the coulomb is also almost challenging in itself because again it's one of those ideas that's very similar to um moles in chemistry as in this is a number it means uh, this many particles which are impossible to even imagine you know so it's, it's in the net we're simplifying it but in a sense because we're simplifying it, it makes it more less concrete in, in funny way to to students and i think in chemistry just a name is 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 not a great name because people start thinking about furry animals and they just start thinking about something else, uh, even though it's related to molecules, not moles, of course. Um, the, um, but, um, you know, how much do you think sometimes the language gets in the way? Because I think what, what's nice about your model, obviously, is it's just literally showing from a very concrete model. And it's been, you know, often commented that when you talk about science things, that is the difficulty, the jump of the concrete to the abstract ideas, whereas you're taking away some of that the kind of the messiness of the language sometimes that kind of make things a bit clunky. So how much do you think um, language plays a part in sometimes the difficulty in explaining things like electricity? Yeah, it's horrid. It's horrid. There's, there's no doubt. Um, I, there, there, there are so many finickety bits about whether we talk about voltage or potential or potential difference, mm. potential difference across, current through. I mean, the, the, just all of these shades of meaning. I, another one is things like... Um, Oh well, you know the electron or, or the the electrons start off at the negative terminal and move towards the positive terminal, and that image immediately for me conjures up empty wires <laughs> with electrons starting somewhere, going through the empty wires and ending up somewhere else. And so, you know, you, it completely destroys this idea that they're, they're already there. Yeah. So, um, what what the simulation tries to do is 
entirely remove language. Like it just doesn't have any language. It also, incidentally, um, has makes no assumption at all about, for example, what resistance is or why resistance uh, reduces the uh, the current. It just doesn't care about that. It just does the right thing and outputs it visually. That's all it does. And then what that helps with is what I call um, getting the macroscopic what right. In other words, um, we're going to make this change, right? What happens? What, what happens to how hot the bulb gets? What happens to what this meter reading does? Okay, cool. Right, now we know what happens, right? Explain that. And then, and then there are two levels of explanation. There's kind of a theoretical level, which is like, well, we can do some maths. And then there's a sort of sub-microscopic level, which if we imagine we have a super magnifying glass, maybe this sort of thing was going on. But what you can't do, I'm fairly sure, I certainly can't do it, is build up from a sub-microscopic level and try to predict macroscopically what will happen. That is you're just on a hiding to nothing doing that. Yeah, it's very, it's very, it's very difficult. Kind of, I was thinking when you were when you're talking about the, also the um, what's difficult to imagine or, or historically. So my understanding of circuits is in the in um, I'll say the olden days, wherever they were. Um, when, you were, when people were talking about circuits in physics, they used to say conventional current, which I think was going the electrons were going from the positive to the negative. And then they they changed their mind, and now um, we say they're going from negative to positive. Is that still is that how your models run? Is is that the way you see it in your animations as well? Are they going in that direction, or is that a, is that a is that a unhelpful model anyway? And does it matter uh, which which way they 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 could or they don't go if they end up back in the same place? I suppose you could say. So again, conventional model is excuse me, conventional current is 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 horrible um, and adds a layer of difficulty. Um, so basically conventional current says, whatever circuit we have, we will always assume it's positive charges moving in the sense positive to negative. Always, we'll always assume that. If it happens to be negatives moving in the other direction, then we will imagine replacing those with imaginary positives flowing in the other direction. And so the electricity explained simulation actually shows positive charges because um, potential is defined in terms of positive charges, not in terms of electrons. And that's why the positive side of the battery is at a higher potential than the negative side. It's to do with conventional current. Um, to me, so so one of one of the sort of stories that you hear is, oh, well, you know, it's because it's because. Um, you know, people got it wrong about electrons and they made a mistake. And that's that's just really not true. What I think what I think it was Franklin. Um, he didn't imagine this isn't like the late 18th century. What he didn't think of was, oh, well, there are these two types of charge, positive and negative. He didn't think that he thought there's probably one type of charge. And what you do is you move it from one thing to another. So one thing kind of gets depleted of that one kind and the other thing ends up with it. Um, and he assumed, he just said arbitrarily, well, the stuff that we're going to move is positive. That's all, right? Okay. So you just it as that. <laughs> yeah. But, but we think that um, electrons are the things that always flow, but they're not. They can be positive and negative ions. They can, they can be real positives flowing. So there's nothing special about electrons. It isn't, it isn't like we're being perverse. And, and to some extent, it's like, it's like which side of the road you drive on. 
Okay, so in the UK, we will drive on the left, but in almost all the rest of the world, apart from Australia and Japan and so on, they drive on the right. Now, we could drive on the right if we wanted to. We could just say, right, we're just going to change it. We're all going to drive on the right. But it would just be so expensive and confusing and pointless that we just wouldn't bother doing it. And it's the same with conventional current. It's like all of physics is written as if it were conventional current. And it's not just a case of understanding circuit. It's, it is all of electromagnetism. And, and there's just the, the, the whole edifice is built up on, on that sign convention. So you, so you can't just move it in the same way that you can't just start driving on the right. It'd be a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, it's, when you were talking, I was thinking about how, why is it that, you know, I reflect after, after teaching for many years, why things are dif difficult to understand. Things you just say as a teacher, go, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's, that's as the specialist, you know what that, that is, or you think you might know what it is. But um, when I reflected on things like, what, you know, what is electricity? Just answering, ask, answering a simple question again. <laughs> um, and the fact in, you know, the crossover between, uh, you know, chemistry and physics, you've got, so idea in, ideas in physics of electrons moving through wires and that they are the charge, okay, they are negative. But if you've got systems within chemistry where you've got a simple cell, where you've got electrons um, uh, collecting on, on certain electrodes, you've got ions in, in a solution that then moving. So you go, well, hang on, these aren't electrons. Well, they're, they're kind of being carried by other things from one place to another. So you could argue it is kind of electrical uh, charge mo moving, but it's like it, in someone's mind that makes it, that's a lot more complicated than just saying, oh, it's electrons flowing around, uh, you know, a circuit going round, round, round. You've got this intermediary and you've got these ions that are, are free to move. And it's that extra layer of complexity. And when I'm saying, they're saying this is what electricity is, it's not what that is. It's, it's almost, um, it's the same thing, but it's hard to compute, I think, in your mind about trying to square those two circles <laughs> and being clear about charge means this. And I don't think, I definitely wasn't very good at kind of, um, being clear about that when I, I maybe taught a chemistry class, maybe a physics class. And I think I don't, I didn't, you kind of kept it in its own little box, but you didn't really, I don't know, you weren't probably clear enough about saying that uh, this has got applications and other ideas, maybe because it's complicated and we felt we were trying to be straightforward by just saying, oh, just accept that and, and what have you. <laughs> I, I, I agree. So I, I do have a little bit about how batteries work in a very hand waving way, but as far as I'm concerned, there are black dots that just go through the battery <laughs> and I ignore, I ignore what happens in the battery. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, there's so many, so many challenging things to do. I mean, I guess you're, uh, I know you're kind of moving on. You talked to me, I got another little project um, going, looking at um, uh, radioactivity, but, but it sounds like electricity is your first lab, but you've still got lots of challenges there. Um, so what made you think, Oh, I'd like to have a go at radioactivity as well. Cause obviously another big area of physics, you've been quite, um, specific about what you want to talk about because physics is very wide and you know electricity is a big topic. Um, so radioactivity is another mysterious um, uh, process to many, many people. So what made you think, oh, this is my next um, challenge, if you like, because there's, lot, again, lots of invisible things we can't see and to explain it. So how, wait, how did you approach that? Where was your starting point in, in, in kind of things you're moving on to next? Yeah, so I think that's a good call. So well, one, they joined together historically. Okay. Like, because they're all about atoms at a, at a, at a deep level and what, make, what makes atoms. Um, and, and so they're, they're joined together at the back. So that's interesting. Um, but they are, yeah, as you say, it's invisible, it's conceptual, and it's full of misconceptions. And that ticks all your boxes. Ticks <laughs> all my boxes. The bit that I find interesting. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. I, I, and also, it, you also, it also has this problem 
that there is even less practical work with radioactivity than there is yes, true. In, in, yeah. uh, with electricity, which is, a, which is a shame. Which is a shame, but it makes, um, it, obviously there's, there's, there's kind of a, uh, health and safety for some things within radioactivity, which is difficult to kind of circumnavigate. And we kind of obviously make models of those, but in a sense, what, what you are doing and what science teachers do generally is that, yes, it is a difficult areas of science, but in a, in, in a funny way, that's the challenge of, of being able to, that's what, in a sense, what science is about, is looking at things that maybe are, are, are on the surface mysterious and kind of peering behind the curtain, thinking, well, what, are, what are the things that are affecting these particular phenomena that we see, uh, sometimes intermittently, sometimes every day? Um, are there any things that you have seen in the past? So you talked about the bread fan model earlier. Uh, which you doesn't sound like you're a fan of. Any other models? Because the one I was guilty, guilty of, which I've spoken to you about before, is the old model of a circuit with the boiler and the water going around, the, the pipes, etc., which seems on perhaps superficially a nice way of explaining the way that energy is transferred to a component, you know, like a, a, a dissipating the, the, the energy. Um, what would you or criticisms be of that, or, or do you quite like that one? I have nothing against the bread van. Um, oh, okay. I'm not saying that it's, but it's, but but within the within the physics education community, it is not well thought of. To, okay. okay, they are unfashionable. unfashionable. Okay, okay. It is very very hard to model an electric circuit using any other kind of mechanical system, and um, one of the reasons for that is because batteries are designed to be constant voltage providers. And they change the current depending on what they're connected to. And whenever what they are connected to changes, the potential difference across their terminals stays the same, as long as you don't make them work too hard, and mm. the current changes. And that is really hard to model in any system. So you, you can... You know, things like the central heating model and the rope loop and the um, the donation model, they're all good, but they have very limited predictive power. If you say, okay, so what happens then if you, um, how do you represent resistance? You know, what what, what, what is that? And you know, what, what do you think happens? So so that's, that's, that's the real challenge. And, and one of the challenges with any model based on friction um, I use the bicycle wheel. I designed that like 20 years ago. The rope loop is, is popular now. One of the problems with that kind of model is that electrical resistance is just a mechanical metaphor for a non-mechanical process. It's, some, it's a word that we've ended up with for historical reasons, but it is not like resistance. And so when we respond to resistance... For example, walking through soft sand or pushing through crowds of jostling people or something like that, then what we tend to do is we tend to work harder to overcome the resistance, right? We 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 sweat more as we go through the step as we go through the, the, the sand. Or what we do is we keep our rate of working about the same and just reduce our speed. Okay, so we just slower through the sand. But batteries don't behave like that at all. If you increase the resistance in a circuit, then what happens is that the current goes down, there's less heating, and the battery works less hard, not harder. Batteries don't try to overcome resistance. They don't try to maintain a constant current or anything like that. And, and But because it's so convincing to think that electrical resistance is somehow like physical resistance that we experience, 
that this leads teachers to come up with analogies that are not predictively right. They predict the wrong thing. They predict that if you increase resistance, then you get more heating. And that seems perfectly reasonable for us, but it's just not how, it's just not how circuits behave. So how do you, so when it, so one of the classic things you have in physics is, is, is to be honest, they're kind of almost uh, historical items to many students, which is the filament bulb, okay, because they've never, they've never seen one, um, other than in a physics lesson, perhaps, is, um, so that is always used as the evidence, I suppose, for that, in terms of they're all, what, what they've always, you know, filament bulbs got high resistance, and, and that's why it heats up, and that's why it gives off light. So how are we explaining that? And so, because resistance, as you say, is a slowing down of the current. But yeah, how does how do you square how do you square that? So how do you explain that in terms of what is a filament bulb doing? If it's if it's not if it's slowing it down, it's not creating any any extra heat or light. How does it have that effect? If that's not too simplistic a question, no, it's it's such a good question. Okay, it's such a good question. So here are some rules of thumb which are true. So one rule of thumb is, and this is for a simple, the simplest possible circuit, a battery and a filament bulb. And you deliberately design the filament bulb so it gets hot. It's like, I want a bit of my circuit to get really hot, and I want that to be the filament bulb. I don't want it to be the battery or the wires or anything else, the filament bulb, right? Yeah. Um, so one, one rule of thumb is the part of the circuit that gets hot is the place where the resistance is. Okay, so where the resistance is, that's where it gets, that's what, what gets hot. But the higher that resistance, the less hot it gets, not the hotter. And that's a really non-intuitive thing, right? So, okay, so, so the next question then is, well, why is it that the filament gets hot and not the wires? What is it about, about the filament that means it gets hot? Because I'm delighted. Because that's, that's the job it's doing. The job it's doing is getting hot. Well, what are, how do I design a filament so it gets hot? And this is really odd. So what I do is I make it narrow. It's very narrow, a filament. And that means that even though the current is the same everywhere, the number of coulombs of charge passing a point each second is the same everywhere, the speed of the actual electrons varies locally. In other words, to have the same number of charges per second going through the narrow filament as going through the thick wire, they have to be moving much, much quicker. And so the filament is bizarrely the place where the electrons travel quicker, not slower. They travel quicker in the filament than in the rest of the circuit. Because of that, they have more, each electron has more interactions per second with the, um, the, the ionic lattice, if you like, than in the, in the thick wires. And that's why it gets hot there and not in the wires. Okay, so it's so in that 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 part of the circuit, they're they're speeding up because they're trying to maintain the overall current. Obviously, and I guess where that's where the does the pipe analogy work quite well there because you're thinking of thin pipes need to maintain that if you like flow rate in it in inverted commas. That part of the circuit is going to be a place where the the water, I guess, will be moving faster. Would that be the case in in in, in the same way? Yeah. So so there's no there's no particular current. Well, I can talk about that in a sec, but it's not like it's aiming for a particular current. It's just that the whatever the current happens to be has to be the same everywhere. That's just like a has to be the same, whatever it might be. Whatever it is has to be the same everywhere. And given that it's the same everywhere, just like water in a pipe, if you have a narrow pipe, then uh, it has to be going quicker. And in fact, we experience this on a motorway, even though the, the laws controlling it are the same. 
um, as you come up to a constriction, you know, where you have a sort of single carriage, where you're actually driving much quicker in the constriction <laughs> than you are in the in the in, in, in the three lanes, you know, closing together on it. Yes, no, it kind of it makes, and it's, it's that it's that challenge, I suppose, of thinking about rates of things, which is always challenging to to myself and many students in terms of you know that imagine that imagination of what what's going on. But when you come that kind of that clicks, this has got to be maintained, then it makes it much more um you know visually well concrete again to me and when things become concrete even abstract things then you can kind of see and then maybe the mass falls into place a little bit uh with which is the next layer because often we tend to do the mass but we don't tend to we don't always link the mass to a picture of what's going on necessarily and i think maybe that's that's um the most powerful people who must understand it like yourself much more clearly than most people are the people who can look at the mathematics and kind of look at that and 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 think about what's going on, uh, you know, literally in your, in your mind as uh, having the numbers at the same same point. So it's both. It's kind of that's why physics. Well, a lot of sciences are quite challenging. I think when you start putting numbers, and people tend to um, get a bit worried. You know, obviously, the more maths you put in things, sometimes that puts a lot of people off. Um, whatever level, whether it's university level to you know down to primary school level. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting uh, um, way you've explained that, Julian. It looks like you're about to give me another nugget, so go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess we've been talking about all of these, um, let's say, uh, specialist ideas about speed of charges and stuff like this. Okay, and I, I wanted to kind of uh, reassure anyone who was interested in electricity explained that this is not what the experience of the of the teacher and student is at the at the very top it's it's like it follows the syllabus it has some videos and stuff like that and, and questions it's it's not mad stuff but what what i think is important what i try to do in the in in the website is to make it so that teachers have an understanding of electric circuits using just 11 to 16 concepts because once if you understand it at some deep level, then you can decide what to show to students. And you can also think about well, what analogies or images am I going to use that are actually consistent with the correct physics, rather than stuff that's not with the, with the, uh, with the correct physics. Now, the other thing I was going to say about maths is that one of the real problems with, with the maths of electric circuits is that you often end up with two quantities that are not independent on the same side of the equal sign. So, for example, V equals IR, which is a horrible way to write that relationship. Um, I and R are not independent. You cannot change R without changing I. <laughs> Unless you change V as well, which is even horrible. Um, if you were to ask somebody, I have a simple um, battery and bulb circuit, and I replace the bulb with a higher resistance, okay, what happens to how bright the bulb is? And a bright student might say, oh, well, I, I know an equation for this. It's power is current squared times resistance, okay? P equals I squared R. And they'll think, okay, so if I increase R, then P is going to go up as well. But the trouble is that when you increase R, I goes down. And because I is squared, it goes down quicker than R goes up. <laughs> so the correct answer is that P goes down. And so there's loads of maths that will lead you astray unless you know a load of sort of tacit deep knowledge about how circuits behave mm, yeah no it's um 
it's yeah it's uh and yes calling things a variable that are not as you say you say you think they're independent but they're they're, they're interconnected it's a bit like in chemistry the ideas of um when you talk about ph for example and the balance of h plus to oh minus ions i won't go into it here because i might get i might, I might get it wrong <laughs> but it's got that balance uh balancing effect of uh of that so in terms of um the learning of physics generally and i've spoken to you about this off the podcast which is what i found the challenge and i'm sure teachers today still find this challenge is that when you are teaching electricity and you get uh the dusty old physics uh not the um sorry the the circuit stuff out you know half the wires have been snapped or something or the bulbs aren't quite working or they're the wrong you know the voltage etc um do you think in a funny way we should do away with the physical circuits and start with software and simulations because it gives a clearer identity of what is going you know uh, uh, evidence for what is going on or do you think that is kind of cheating in some sense and actually we should try and um accept that you know uh, when we're doing our parallel circuits we're not going to get our perfect split of current uh in our three branches or what have you um because the results are so so difficult to be consistent with depending on what what circuits you've got um so is there any particular advantage or disadvantages to like using simulations or uh using just circuits on their own do you would you advise using a combination of both or how, how do you view that, that that kind of um conundrum I suspect what you should do is abandon all of your equipment and spend all of the budget on electricity expenditure. Of course, you're going to say that. <laughs> I mean, it just seems like a no-brainer to me. <laughs> yeah, yes. never, never ask your barber if you need a haircut. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I, again, my role is not to try to change how people teach electricity, really. What, what I want to do is make it uh, an interesting and engaging experience where teachers can look at the syllabus and just do the stuff they're used to, but perhaps in a slightly cleaner, more accurate way. But if I could do it from scratch, <laughs> okay, um, one of the things is that an electric circuit is kind of a machine. And there's like learning electricity, and then there's learning about electrical machines. And a machine would be you know, like a battery in a bulb, and it does a useful thing. It, pro- it produces light. And what we don't do with machines, typically, is if, when we're trying to learn about them, what we don't do is connect them across the wrong stuff. Like, so, you know, one question is, well, what is voltage? Well, voltage is just a number that helps you match a battery to a component <laughs> and, and, and make sure these numbers are the same and you know, don't do different ones. And, and we never basically never connect things in series like we don't connect stuff in series it'd be like taking the back wheel off your car and deciding to see what happens if you put it next to the other back wheel I mean, why, why would you do that or 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 you know taking the uh, the charging cable out and trying to pump, push it in your petrol tank i mean just don't do that don't so so the first thing i would do is i would connect stuff across the voltage that is designed to be connected across. <laughs> that's, that's the very first thing I'd do. And then I'd look at, well, which thing gets brighter? And what do you think that means about how quickly the battery runs down? Or what do you think that means about um, how big your electricity bill is? Or, or um, how much carbon is generated from um, producing the electricity to do this thing? Or what happens if I left it on for longer? Or what happens if I turned it up or turned it down? And so I think there are all sorts of things that you can do with familiar household objects that are not the same as, well, when we have three bulbs in series and two batteries. This is all, in my view, what I call puzzle solving. 
it's it's not the same as understanding something. It's it's the same as just having a sort of set of rules and then trying to decode the rules. I'm much more comfortable using practical equipment to try to understand the world than to just solve interesting puzzles. Yes, and you've you've done a you've done a great job. I was going to ask you about because we've been talking about a lot of um, well, kind of quite abstract ideas. I guess as you do in science, um, I wanted to ask you what you other than obviously your own work, are there other sources of information you've used in the past? Because you must have d- d- uh, been digging very deep to find out about uh, the way electricity actually works. Are there any kind of, I, I want to say accessible, accessible for teachers, I suppose, if they want to kind of look into the, the world of um, this area of physical you know, electricity uh, that you have found in your kind of research that have, has really kind of opened your eyes? Are there any easy access or are they all kind of academic papers? What, what have you... What kind of areas do you, do you look at or do you just start from scratch, as it were, and just try and model it yourself? Yeah, Any external things? So I don't have anything canonical. The the um, A lot of the IOP stuff, Sparks IOP stuff is really good, notwithstanding their, their sort of, um, you know, their love of the rope loop, which I don't love. Um, but, you know, it's really thoughtful. It's It's really consistent. It's written by people who, you know, deeply understand the subject. So that that's always a good place to start. I, I find it I find it slightly confusing in the way it's organised, and there's an, there's an awful lot of it. Um, that, that's on the, on the electricity front. Um, actually, one of the books that I did want to um, to recommend um, is the Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. I don't know if you've come across that. I've heard of that. No. So this the Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Revolutions. Okay. By Thomas Kuhn. K U H N. Okay, and and could you give us a quick summary of the <laughs> well, book? It might be quite a big book. I don't know. It's super thin. It's one of the most influential books on the philosophy of science, and in fact, it's one it's, it's one of the most referred to books um, in in all of academic literature, actually. Um, and it basically looks at how science is not built up step by step, but suffers from big discontinuities, big revolutions, um, and and it's very interesting. And I. Th- yeah, I would definitely recommend that. Um, and I, I would also recommend, um, I would also recommend, what is this thing called science by A.F. Chalmers, which is another book on the philosophy of science, which is absolutely brilliant. So another another, another good recommendation. So in terms of, because our time is coming to an end now, but if people want to interact with you, obviously I guess they can join uh, speech on your website or chat to you on the website. Um, are you on X, as it's called now as well? Do you interact on that platform? Are you, um, or is it the best way just to get onto um, Electricity Explained if you've got questions about um, electricity? Uh, is that the best way to, to get in touch with you? Uh, yes, um, I am on X and I am on LinkedIn um, and I, I'll let you put the link in the doobly-doo at the, at the bottom. For Into that. the show notes. Yeah. And also it's www.electricityexplained.com. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been really nice to talk to you today, uh, Julian. Hopefully we'll catch up again soon in the, in the science world somewhere. Um, and uh, best of luck with all your future product, pro- projects. And thanks for being so um, lucid in your, in your descriptions and explanations of electricity. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. It's been a real pleasure. Well, I hope you got a lot out of that episode. It was great to talk to Julian about his mission to explain the wonderful world of electricity to students from across the globe. Julian is a true enthusiast for all things physics and I look forward to seeing how his next project turns out. 
I recommend checking out Julian's Electricity Explained website as it will illuminate your understanding of the world of circuits. Do you know someone who's making a real difference in science education just like Julian? If so, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me your recommendations at andy.woods at pearson.com. That's andy.woods at pearson.com. Thanks so much for listening today. Take care and I'll see you on the next one.